0: Welcome to the Duke and Duchess Podcast. Welcome. Here we are in episode seventy one. Episode seventy
1: one. I'm Chad. And
0: we are covering chapters 59 through 64 of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. First book in the Stormlight Archive series.
1: It is indeed. That is what it is. What will we be covering next time?
0: Next time we will be covering chapters 65 through 69.
1: Outstanding. Here's what I'm supposed to say. Nice.
0: (laughs) I was waiting for it.
1: I'm not trying to give you what you expect, but I, but I did anyway. <laughs> Our spoiler policy is very simply that Liz has read the books several times, but I have not read the books, so we will not spoil anything past Chapter 64 of The Way of Kings.
0: So what did you think this week?
1: It was a good section, not a great section. And I say it from this from this standpoint. There was one chapter that was like, Really, really, like, really great. And then the other chapters were just kind of like, okay, in my opinion.
0: One chapter where things kind of happened. Yeah. And then there was a lot of talking. And then an awful lot of Sorting through things.
1: Yeah. A lot of feelings Getting going on. Getting ready
0: for things to happen. Talking about feelings. Talking
1: about feelings. A lot of feelings being talked about. There were, I mean, there was some cool vision stuff that I thought was kind of cool.
0: Some making out.
1: You're not going to make me read the kissing parts again, are you? (laughs) Can we just skip the kissing stuff?
0: Very PG making out.
1: (laughs) No, it was a good section overall. There was Mm -hmm. some exciting stuff, and then uh, you know, just I'm kind of I was at a similar place at the end of The Name of the Wind, where I'm like, okay,
0: yeah, when's he going to get kicked out of the university? (laughs) Yeah, like.
1: Can we like, can we move this forward? I think it's- More
0: potions class.
1: You know, and it ends like before they're getting ready to raid the tower. So I think that's a part of it too. It's like, it it builds up to this cliffhanger and it's like, let's go, you know, and-
0: Let's go next week. I'll get to read that. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So it was a good section. It wasn't my favorite,
0: but it was all right. Well, let's get into it. Let's. Chapter 59 is called An Honor. Kaladin is attempting to recreate his stormy powers, but without someone trying to gut punch him. He's not having much success. Teft isn't able to help much, but he reminds him that having powers isn't what makes him a Radiant. Being a Radiant means following a way of life centered around the immortal words. Life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. This was the first ideal of the Knight's Radiant. There were four more ideals unique to each order of radiance. These ideals were based on the Way of Kings, a book written by some old dude, apparently. Bro code. Bro code. And ho code. Bro code
1: and ho code. There were hoes
0: in the Knight's Radiant.
1: Of course there were.
0: Just saying.
1: I meant, I meant like a gender-neutral bro.
0: Gender-neutral bro. God, the bro is an attitude.
1: Absolutely. Get your bro glow on. You got to get on your bro glow.
0: <sighs>
1: I'm sorry, you were saying something?
0: So the Stormlight lessons get interrupted by Hashel who tells them that Bridge 4 is going to be placed on permanent bridge duty every day and permanent chasm duty every night. Things are looking bad. Fortunately, Kaladin has a plan. It involves cutting the carapace off of a Parshendi corpse and making a set of armor from it. The plan is brazen to the point of insanity, but as Kaladin reasons, when careful, clever plans failed, it was time to try something desperate.
1: Quality summary.
0: Thank you. Worked hard on it.
1: Very, very quality.
0: So we have Kaladin coming to grips. You know, he came to grips emotionally with what it meant to have powers. And he he accepted that part of himself. But now we see him trying to get down to the nitty gritty of actually being able to do anything with his powers. In the beginning of the chapter, he's just sitting there kind of staring at some spheres he's not able to will anything to happen later on when he's down in the chasms he is able to uh, channel that stormlight a little bit but when he tries to just you know start bouncing off walls it <laughs> doesn't go so well for him
1: maybe if I run up this wall I'll just stick to it
0: I'm sorry it just it's so something that our nine-year-old would do
1: oh it's something I, I think
0: it's something she may have done
1: it's something I have done really yeah
0: so that's where she gets it from maybe the running into walls thing that's all you you are officially taking credit for that
1: i guess that's a podcast exclusive yeah we've (laughs) never talked about yeah (laughs) when i was about 10 years old one of my favorite activities like i wanted to be a stunt person
0: totes believe that
1: i wanted to be a uh, you know the fall guy right And so like I used to love to ride my bike, you know, into like a field and then I would purposefully crash it, (laughs) you know, and I'd be like, oh, you know, in fault. So I'd never really put two and two together before. But, yeah, that is where she gets it from. And I definitely tried to run on a wall.
0: How'd that go for you?
1: It didn't go well.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. I've
1: also repeatedly tried to ride a skateboard sideways on a wall. I made it three or four feet. Really? Yeah, yeah.
0: So we also have Kaladin struggling with these, this concept of the ideals. You know, he's Teft is trying to explain how important they were. He's kind of glib about it. In my mind, they seem to kind of go together a little bit.
1: The, his, the, you his mean the, str- powers, and the-, yeah, the yeah, powers? Yeah, the mm-hmm. powers, and his
0: his struggle with the powers, his struggle to get his mind around what the Night's Radiant even stood for. And he's kind of like, life before death, duh, life comes yeah. <laughs> before death. And Teft is like, uh, don't be a douche about it, why, man.
1: Why you got to be a 19-year-old? <laughs> right. Stop it. The, that was where most of, well, a chunk of my notes anyway came from for this chapter, but really my first kind of note is an observation that all three of those phrases all fly completely in the face of everything that Sadius does.
0: Absolutely. And the current Alethi culture in general. Yeah,
1: not him specifically, but yeah, the whole culture. Um, You know, needlessly killing people without any regard. Strength before weakness, you know, and using strength to help people. No, they use strength just for its own purposes and you know being able to serve others is not what causes you to be fit for rule apparently it's just random ass eye color and how many how many vassals you have in your kingdom and then you know the idea of journey before destination about it being the right way to go about things that's the absolute opposite of what these folks are any any cost as long as it makes me richer you know, it doesn't matter how many lives I spend. As long as I get a gem heart out of it, I've done the right thing. You know, and they feel completely just in that notion because they feel like it's what the Heralds would have wanted. But we know that the Heralds and the Radiants are very closely linked together, and this e- these are the watchwords of the Radiants themselves. So we know, or we at least conjecture, that this is not at all what the Heralds would have wanted. Then we have this sort of Almighty, you know, the random Almighty that gets thrown around that we don't really know anything about. We don't know if the Heralds and the Radiance are connected to the Almighty. We don't really know anything about it.
0: And again, it's so poignant to look at the Alethi or the precursors to the Alethi that we saw in Dalinar's vision, you know, those who, who lived in Alethala, mm-hmm. who were the the protectors, the fighters, the warriors who were to protect others, and to see how that culture has been warped and twisted throughout the centuries into what it is now. And it's, it's just so, just pulls on your heartstrings.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to question. I mean, these people have lost a lot of history, a lot of truth. They don't really know what's real. No more than we don't really know what is real from 4,500 years ago. We don't have detailed, mm-hmm. you know, breakdowns of things. Um, so they've lost all of that, but also they've lost all these magical powers and abilities. And it's interesting to, to note, is it, or to ask rather, is it because they've deviated from these ideals that they've lost those powers or does one plus one not equal two in that scenario i don't know those things may not at all be related
0: yeah that's a good question i think you're meant to wonder at this point is there some kind of supernatural cause behind this phenomenon or is it the other way around? Did the Alethi just fall away from who they were meant to be?
1: Yeah. And it's just
0: an interesting statement on, I, I feel like, our current culture.
1: Back when George Washington could chop down cherry trees with his hand.
0: Exactly. How far we've fallen. Just
1: the, the power of his righteousness. So few sc-
0: Americans can even do that anymore. It's
1: very few. He scanned his eyes across the the Potomac River or across Yorktown and... There he saw the British ships and he burned them with his truth beams. Exactly. Don't Don't fuck
0: with George Washington. You shouldn't. That's what they used to say. It's not
1: a good idea. Back in
0: the day. (laughs) Thou shalt not.
1: It was actually what was going to be minted on the first coins. (laughs) But Congressional Congress had a, you know, thou shalt not fuck with George Washington.
0: (laughs) So we get a little bit of... I have a little bit of world-building notes. This idea that the Radiants base their ideals on Nohadan's teachings and this idea about people's calling leading to them having power in the afterlife and that excellence in any calling leads to power in the afterlife. So we've kind of heard that before, but not explicitly put that way. And Kaladin is left to wonder... Where does that leave the Bridgman? Like no one is, yeah. no one is expecting the Bridgman to be excellent at anything. It's like they're just, they're the dregs, they're the forgotten crumbs, and I think there's always a, kind of a class of people that, that those in power or religious leaders are just going to to overlook, and that's the Bridgman here.
1: Yeah, I have some notes about hashal and like metal, metal, matter whatever.
0: I call them hashal and metal.
1: Okay. I have notes about those cats.
0: Hey, what's up with those cats?
1: What is up with those cats? I find it really uncomfortable, those two and their whole, well, the you guys have done such a great job, so we're not going to give you any extra men, but you're too good for us to waste, so we're going to put you on bridge duty every day. It just seems like wanton cruelty just for the sake of it. And I don't feel like these characters have really been fleshed out to give me any reason to think of them any as anything other than cartoonishly evil. At the same point in time, I feel like this isn't—it's not random that this is happening. Kaladin has obviously pissed people off, and they've—you know, his leadership has been replaced. They got rid of Gaz. I'm pretty sure Gaz is dead, or at least he's been, you know— removed from the situation for a reason. There are people sort of steering this ship. It just plays out as this just uncomfortable, like Cruella DeVille kind of notion. And it, I don't know if it doesn't come back around to some, if there's not some reason for this, then it, it, this seems like bad writing to me just to motivate and create tension just because these are you know Cruella Deville cartoonishly evil type people like i don't I don't like it and it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm also willing to give it time to see if there's a reason for it. I suspect that there is it made this what otherwise would have been a pretty good chapter. it made really un fun for me to read
0: so here's my take on that. First off, we learn, if not in this chapter, then in this section, that Sadius is still having to have soldiers whipped for trying to come and get a look at Kaladin, this this miraculous bridgeman who survived the high storm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's that factor. At the same time, Sadius himself proclaimed that if Kaladin survived the storm, he could live, and he's not willing to. Just out and out execute this guy. But it yeah. seems pretty evident to me that he has given direct orders that Kaladin needs to be taken out as soon as possible. And in, in a way that he needs to be taken out on a bridge run. And that needs to happen soon. And Hashal and Matal's predecessor was just executed because of something that Kaladin did. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to me out of the question that these guys would come in and be like, okay we can't out and out execute him unless he does something else, okay? But we're also supposed to make sure that he dies as soon as possible. But we can't be seen actually doing anything. You know, we can't just like starve them or anything like that because there's all these people watching.
1: See, that's the part of it I think that's hard hard for me to believe. Maybe not hard for me to believe, but where maybe some of that discomfort lies because... This society is so blatantly cruel, so blatantly racist, so blatantly classist, and doesn't have a problem executing people. You know, executed, as you said, their bridge leader and their old leader, you know, and their um you know,
0: They executed the light eyes who was in charge.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, why wouldn't they, you know, like, it just seems, I get that there's supposed to be some sort of idea that they hold themselves above just being, you know, cruel and barbaric, and they don't see it that way. I get that, but I don't really feel like it's, I don't feel like that part is really being demonstrated sufficiently to me, like, All I get from this society is asshole, 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 super asshole, Dalinar, asshole, (laughs) asshole, asshole. asshole. Like that's what, that's what I get. Mm -hmm. Like, so like I don't, it's not even like there's a society where there's some conflict, right? So like, I'll give you for an an, an example, Song of Ice and Fire reference in Game of Thrones, Ed, you know, Ned Stark executes people. Executes one of the first characters you meet in the book wrongly, unjustly. But you feel like the society you feel like there's com- enough complexity in the society that you can understand who Ned Stark is and also understand why he did that. These people it just seems like asshole party. It's like an eighties
0: asshole. It's an party. asshole party.
1: It's just an eighties like frat party. Like it's like all the like it's everybody in Revenge of the Nerds who wasn't one of the nerds. That's who the Alethe are. It's just nothing but booger and Chad and booger. That's it. <laughs> that's that's all it is. And so like, so I, all I get out of it is these people are assholes. I don't, I don't really feel that I, you know, that they even have any real kind of moralistic ideas that would prevent them from just killing them outright.
0: I mean, I'm going to disagree with you there. I I do agree that most of them are assholes, but they have to justify being assholes in their minds. I feel like there's a remnant of who they're supposed to be is lingers in their culture, even though they have to tell themselves, well, you know, um, the men who die fighting get a chance to go on and fight for the tranquil halls. And I think that their ideas about the afterlife hugely inform the way that they treat each other and the, the way that they treat issues of life and death in their culture Mm -hmm. so this idea that if you die fighting or being excellent at being a soldier you're going to get the best spot in the afterlife that's a huge part of Mm -hmm. who they are as a people i'm going somewhere with this where am i going with this
1: (laughs) i just rambled on for 10 minutes about it and repeating myself
0: um but do you
1: agree that it's an asshole party that's all i want to know
0: okay yes but they're assholes (laughs) who don't think they're assholes they're assholes okay. who feel like they're doing the right thing, even though they're, you know, they're sending soldiers to die kind of callously, like we saw, you know, in that first chasm fiend hunt where they're out and, you know, right after all these men die, they're they're partying or whatever. And Elokar is like, oh, well, you know, they've gone on to the tranquil and halls. It's fine for them they still at least have to rationalize and justify to themselves. They're not like rubbing their hands together like, yes, I love killing people. It just, they've rationalized that they're able to compartmentalize what they want to do for their own selfish reasons. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, but the, the culture isn't like openly glorifying, executing innocent people. Does that make sense? I guess. You can say no. <laughs> I don't, I we'll
1: don't know. We'll still be married. <laughs> you don't
0: have to agree with me on this.
1: I don't see it as much as you do. I mean, I can sort of intellectually understand what you're saying. Uh, and I also know, obviously, that to be a trait that's true, that people we look back on historically and say these are among the most evil people did not think of themselves that way. But all I see is are a shit ton of evil people.
0: I'm not saying they're not evil. Um I'm saying that they are not poorly written. I mean, are Heschel and Metal a little cartoonish? Maybe. Um we haven't gotten to know them very well. No, we haven't. We you know yeah. we don't we haven't had a window into their minds. Gaz seemed a little cartoonish until we got kind of a couple of point of view chapters from him not whole chapters but little snippets and then he was more layered and complex yeah you know what i'm saying
1: yeah which is why i say i'm willing to willing to see it through and and kind of hold off on my judgment
0: and the way that
1: this conversation may not make that apparent because I'm not holding off on a judgment.
0: Oh, you're judging the hell out of it. (laughs) But you know, those point of view chapters from Gaz as well also gave us a glimpse into the pressure of being lower level management in a lethy culture. Like there is not a worse job because you're held accountable for everything everyone under you does. Mm -hmm. And they're going to kill you, but you also don't have a lot of privileges. Yeah. So it's not a great place to be. So I don't know if we... We definitely have not come to a consensus there, but probably tend to move on.
1: So there's Oh, more. and a good quote. Go ahead.
0: You'd follow a crazy man into battle? Sure. If you're crazy, you're the good kind.
1: Uh, yeah. I also thought it was interesting. There was a lot of references to rocks in, in this chapter. We uh-huh. still continue to get that without any real explanation of what it is. However... Uh, just another thing to file away when Kaladin is going down and he finds the Parshendi corpses he says the Parshendi are almost rock like Mm -hmm. specifically says that almost as if they've been cut from stone and then two sentences later completely out of nowhere he says cut gemstones held stormlight better why was that Hmm. so I don't know what that means but I've Pretty sure that's a deliberate placement of those words in those sentences. All right. And then we also get, once again, a demonstration of the Parshendi here at the end of the chapter, who we don't know much about them in terms of what their physical culture might be like. Uh, the only thing we sort of see is that they uh, they have several things about their dress, for instance, that indicate a society that's relatively primitive, like cutting like uncut gemstones and weaving them into their beards, for instance. But they also have these knives that are crazy high quality and super elaborate. That is going to come to play in something that happens at the beginning of the next chapter. And again, I don't think those things are adjacent by accident.
0: All right. We also have a lot of talk about does power corrupt people necessarily? And that's a big theme in the book and it's something that's been brought up a bunch. But Teft and Kaladin talk about were the Radiants corrupt? And that's something that we've seen a lot in this section of chapters that we've read. This debate over were the Radiants really bad? Did mm-hmm. they start out good and turn bad? They're definitely at this point thought of as being evil tyrants, mm-hmm. but not a whole lot is known about them. So Kaladin is arguing to Teft that if they had power, they were assholes. They had to have a bunch of Chads. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they had to have been. And Teft is like, well, I would have thought that too until I met you.
1: We really only have one character we've seen so far who has power who doesn't abuse it in in the in the main story. And that's Dalinar. Mm-hmm. But everybody else we've seen.
0: Bunch of chads.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You ready to move on? I'm
1: ready to move on. All right. Chapter- oh, and I made a mistake. I made a very important mistake. Uh-oh. I put Booger in the camp of all the 80s jocks yeah, Pilgrim was clearly one of the nerds. He
0: w- he was. I was just going to let it go, but
1: I just I just realized what I had done there, and I'm going to hey, burn. I'm going to burn prayers later it's to atone. Okay.
0: You've you've redeemed yourself. <laughs> it's late. <laughs> okay, chapter sixty is called "That Which We Cannot Have." Dalinar and his family are preparing for another high storm. His vision this time allows him to meet Nohadan, the author of The Way of Kings. After a quick squee, Dalinar convinces his hero not to give up his throne and suggests that he write a book. He learns more about the desolations and about the founding of the Knights Radiant. Back in the real world, Navani excitedly informs them that she's recognized one of the phrases that Dalinar spoke in his vision. It's a line from a song supposedly written in the Dawn Chant, an untranslatable dead language. Apparently, the gibberish that Dalinar has been speaking during his visions was this language. They now have proof that Dalinar's visions are real. Boom, yo.
1: Boom. So it was an interesting vision.
0: Yes, it was.
1: There's there's some things here. Some things. There's stuff.
0: Yes, there is. There's
1: definitely stuff. All right. So before we get into the vision, I only had all my notes are related to the vision, with the exception of one. Okay. And so I'm going to get that out of the way first. So before we get into the actual storm, when they're having their little talk, before uh, Delinar gets whisked away, once again, the storm wardens are mentioned. Yes. And it caused me to realize they, these people keep coming up. They keep being mentioned, but we haven't really explored them at all. So for instance, the Ardentia, now we haven't spent a ton of time with them, but we've spent some time with them. Enough to get a sketch of kind of what they're like. And they're brought up, and you know, the Ardents are brought up, uh, the Devotaries are brought up, and, and enough to give us some sense of what that's all about. The Storm Wardens, other than the fact that they predict storms, we know nothing about. But it keeps being brought up. And I suspect there's something more going on there than uh, than ancient meteorologist,
0: right? And what's interesting in this chapter is that Dalinar thinks is thinking about the storm wardens, and he thinks how when they first started becoming very popular, he had rejected them. So this is not a, like a deeply ingrained class or profession in this society. Mm,
1: good call out, or if
0: it has been. Around for a while, it's only recently become more socially acceptable because of the the taboo against seeing into the future. Mm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Also, just how like even when it's not a high storm, the weather on Prochar is totally whack.
1: Yeah, the the those seasons and all of that. Yeah, yeah
0: he mentions that um, that. The spring, the chilly spring weather, and uh, it's continuing to refuse to slip into summer. But at least it hadn't slid into winter either. And like, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, it is. Which uh, your point about the storm wardens and their ability to s- potentially, their ability to see in the future, just causes me to question: How do they predict? Like, we don't, we don't know,
0: especially without being able to read. You know, they, they claim that they can't read, that they use glyphs. And I thought it was interesting that Dalinar...
1: You specifically called Specifically that out. Yeah.
0: calls that out and explains the difference. So a glyph is meant to be enough like a picture that someone who's never seen it before would be able to understand what it meant. It's It can't have like symbols that need to be interpreted.
1: You know, given the age, and this is a culture which has replaced a lot of technology with magic. So we don't really know, do they have the ability, any of the sort of like abilities to, you know, is there anything scientific behind it at all? Is it? We don't know. We have no idea.
0: We do know that when in one of Kaladin's flashbacks, his mother talks to him about being a storm warden as being one of his possible paths And she talks about all the things he would learn if he became a storm warden. Mm. That's all we really know.
1: Gotcha. Okay. All right.
0: Let's talk about the vision. Let's talk about it. Boy, those desolations were bad.
1: They were.
0: Zero out of five stars.
1: (laughs) Do not recommend.
0: Do not recommend the desolations. (laughs) So Dalinar finds himself talking I mean, very with-
1: few of those ratings are going to ever get written down. I mean... It's true. You know, most people aren't going to survive to leave a, leave a review. <laughs> so Dalinar sees this guy, right? Right. Walks up to him and he describes him white robes, hands together. He's got like... Gold weave that leads to some weird symbol on his head. Braided ponytail. Pointed beard. He's like... Like a uber-cosplayed Cal Drogo. <laughs> like slash wizard from... You know, the wizard from the old like Merlin movies. I
0: could totally see it.
1: You know, with the crazy wizards... going. Anyway... So he describes him, but you know what he never brings up? He never brings up the man's eye color.
0: Hmm.
1: Which Dalinar notes the eye color of like... Everyone. Everybody.
0: Right. That dog over there has brown eyes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, he constantly is bringing up everyone's eye color. Does not mention this guy. But he thinks he's no Hadan, or no Hayden or however you say it. I find that really strange. If he does have light eye color, then it's less of a concern. But if he was dark eyed, then I feel like it would be highly out of character for him not to bring it up because I think he would be shocked by it.
0: Absolutely. I I would assume that he was light eyed because otherwise, you know, when Dalinar was in the vision where he was a soldier and there was a dark eyed captain, Mm -hmm. he was like shocked. So I, I definitely think it would have been mentioned if he had dark eyes.
1: I hope so. I hope so. But I just I noted that it was strange that this character who's like his hero. He doesn't bring that up, but he's he tells you everybody else's eye color.
0: All right. It's
1: very suspicious. Okay. Highly suspicious, Duchess. All right. So also, Nohadan or whoever it is, mentions the Nahel Bond gave him more wisdom than ordinary men. Alas, not all spren are as discerning as honor spren.
0: Gave him no more wisdom. Oh. Than ordinary men.
1: Oh. I misread That's that. an important word. Yeah, very important. But again, uh, but then uh, we don't know what that is. And then the statement, not all spren are as discerning as honor spren.
0: So Dalinar comes into this vision in the person of Nohadan's advisor, Karm. Mm-hmm. He's walking along, they're talking. They're talking about how bad this desolation sucked and that this particular desolation, Nohadan is... Frustrated because they came into it from a place of weakness. And that is because of this guy, Alec Havish, who was a surge binder, who we don't know how, but brought the people to war. So he was some kind of rebel surge binder, but not a Night Radiant because those hadn't been founded yet. Yeah. And apparently, whatever Alec Havish did, um, started this war before the desolation when the desolation hit it was so bad that nine out of every 10 people in the kingdom were dead so one tenth of the people survived so that's pretty bad
1: that's horrendous
0: and he's he's talking about how some something has to be done like like we have to be better the people who are in charge have to be better and we know that the way of kings is about that yeah He's talking about Alakavish when he says, yet the Nahel bond gave him no more wisdom than an ordinary man. Alas, not all spren are as discerning as honor spren. So we know that Alakavish was a surge binder through something called the Nahel bond.
1: Oh, I wouldn't have assumed that. Okay.
0: Well, he's talking about him being a surge binder. Hold on. Let me find it. Alakavish was a surge binder. He should have known better. And yet the not hell bond gave him no more wisdom than an ordinary man. Alas, not all spren are as discerning as honor spren. Okay. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I, I, I didn't assume that one had anything to do with the other though. I guess I, I probably should have. And then to loop the third thing, the spren in there, it's just a big heaping plate of what the hell. So, We get to see Voidbringers.
0: Possibly Voidbringers.
1: Well, that's what uh, Dalinar suspects that they are. Yeah. Uh, Well, some sort of giant creature. Some sort of giant
0: stone creatures. Yeah,
1: yeah. Who have arrow-like faces.
0: Very interesting.
1: Yeah, there's only one other thing in this novel who's been described as having an arrow-like face. That's Hoyd. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Brandon Sanderson chose to use that exact phrase to describe Hoyd. I don't believe it's because he ran out of vocabulary. So I have to assume there's some sort of relationship between whatever that creature is and Hoyd.
0: We'll see. I, I feel like Moash, he, or he's described as being hawk like. So I'm I'm not mm. sure. I I feel like it's been used with a couple other
1: people really? okay. as well. Right.
0: And these creatures, I I feel like they're like giant stone creatures, like biggest houses.
1: Yeah, which um, is interesting because I mean, not that we would not that we would be surprised that there would be more that there would be a variety of these you know creatures. We know that. Some of the other things that Dalinar saw were weird and different than this. But in the opening prelude, when they're fighting what the Voidbringers, the man, uh, he's described as having his claws almost the size of a man. Right. You know, Uh, so it seems like they were a lot larger than whatever it is that Dalinar is seeing here.
0: Yeah, the first sentence of the novel describes something Mm. called a thunderclast.
1: Mm, That's right. Mm
0: -hmm. The rounded a rocky stone ridge and stumbled to a stop before the body of a dying thunderclast. The enormous stone beast lay on its side, rib-like protrusions from its chest broken and cracked. The monstrosity was vaguely skeletal in shape with unnaturally long limbs that sprouted from granite shoulders. The eyes were deep red spots in the arrowhead face as if created by a fire burning deep within the stone. So there's that.
1: There's that right there. Yeah. These are also described as being skeletal and having arrow-like faces. Yes. So seems like perhaps a thunderclast.
0: It might be a thunderclast. It
1: might be thunder, 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 thunderclast.
0: So we hear a couple of names of some more ancient civilizations that aren't around anymore: Tarma, Eilis, Sir Dar- Dalinar hasn't doesn't recognize any of them. So we're pretty sure that they did not survive this desolation either.
1: Yeah. So, Nohadan says, I can't save them, and he starts to talk about all the different kingdoms fighting with each each other. He says, you put two men in a room, they'll find something to fight about. And I found it interesting that Dalinar doesn't take the opportunity to say, unite them, because I thought, for sure, that's what he was going to say. Right. I thought he was going to say, unite them. That's what you need to do. Unite them. But he doesn't. He doesn't say it.
0: Missed opportunity.
1: Missed opportunity. That's all I have for this chapter. Yeah, me too. Okay.
0: So chapter 61 is called Right for Wrong. We pick up where the last chapter left off with Dalinar and Navani discussing his vision. Rather than being relieved to not be crazy, Dalinar is disturbed by the questions this revelation raises. Namely, who are these visions from, and why are they happening? They agree to disagree, and then they make out a little. <laughs> Finally, jeez,
1: yeah, so the question is, was it Nohadan? W- what do you think? I don't know. I feel like Dalinar's reasons were fairly flimsy. I just know it. He had a regal bearing.
0: Well, he also confirmed that one of his sayings were his sayings.
1: That's true. That's Dalinar
0: true. quoted something that he knew Nohadon had said, and Nohadon said, "Yeah, using my own sayings against me." You know.
1: So then, Nivani asks him if uh, if he if his visions could be related to his seeking the old magic.
0: Yeah, she brings up that again. Dalinar doesn't again, still doesn't want to talk about the old magic. Won't talk
1: about it. Yeah. But doesn't think that they are. Doesn't think this is related to that at all.
0: So yet another mystery going on.
1: I sort of feel like. Dalinar. Went and asked the Night Watcher. To take away. The pain of his wife dying. Okay. That seems fairly obvious. To me it seems like. That was the curse itself. What he asked for what he thought would be the boon was the curse. And I feel like these visions are the boon.
0: Interesting.
1: Because I feel like Dalinar gets an opportunity to sort of get like a little bit of a, hey, heads up, guy. The desolations are right around the corner again. You need to do something to prepare for them. That's sort of what I feel like is going on here.
0: So we get some good character development from Dalinar and Navani, especially Mm -hmm. as they kind of work through the last roadblocks um, to them becoming a couple. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Dalinar particularly—he's in a vulnerable place right now. He's struggling with what does this mean? You know, I think he almost come to terms with the fact that he was probably crazy. Yeah, you know, and so the fact that it's proven that he's not means something entirely different. Now he has to make a decision as to whether he's going to trust what he's learning in the visions or not. You know, and the idea that they could be some from some nefarious supernatural source is becoming a very real possibility in his mind.
1: Yeah, it's which is interesting to me because it's not really something I had even I hadn't even really thought of it from that angle. I just sort of always assumed that they would be something sort of trying to guide him towards something positive. Never really even crossed my mind that it could be from, as you said, from a nefarious source.
0: And we really see here Dalinar's fear of being manipulated. And I think that's what ultimately makes him fall into Navani's arms at last um, because she finally stops trying to manipulate him and gets open and honest about how she's been feeling. And the real reason that she came back was that, you know, she had gone away a couple of years ago to help run the kingdom in the absence of everyone else important in a Lethe society. You know, basically Mm -hmm. the kingdom is being run by Elokar's wife, and Navani but what she found when she got back to court was that she wasn't needed or really wanted that she was the wife of a dead king and she was kind of just put off to the side and that's just not something that someone with her personality can tolerate so she had to come back and that she's always had feelings for Dalinar that she never had for her husband and um, when she finally kind of gets open about what she's feeling is when Dalinar allows her in
1: yeah, it's interesting as well. I, I thought that she said, "She said I was never unfaithful to Gavilar, though I had ample reason."
0: Yeah, she's trying to talk a little smack about Gavilar, and Dalinar's but like, not, I, "I don't, I don't want to talk hear about that. my
1: dead brother." Yeah, yeah.
0: And she's also afraid about what's going on in the world at large. You know, she tells Dalinar that. The king of Ed was just killed by the assassin in white, mm-hmm. which we knew, but he hadn't known yet. And she brings up the the strange things that people are saying as they're dying. Sometimes mm-hmm. she's freaked out.
1: Yeah, she seems to be the only one with any sort of sense in this series, at least inside of inside of the shattered plains. You know, nobody else seems to. Uh, To really be able to kind of put all this together and realize that what they're doing is not the most important thing that's going on right now.
0: We also find that the high storms are getting more powerful, which is interesting.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: So they talk a little bit about a couple of different myths and stories as well, which is interesting from a world building standpoint. They tell the story of Parasafi and Nadris. Parasafi, in order to repopulate her fallen people, had climbed up some mountains and found stones that had been touched by the heralds themselves. Ten, of course, because mm-hmm. ten is the magic number in this system. Yeah. And she brought them to Nadris on his deathbed and harvested his seed. Gross. To bring <laughs> life to ten children. Hey, who they call the,
1: it spren for a reason.
0: <laughs> right. On a rock, though? Right. On your deathbed, let me let me jerk you off with this rock. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> sorry it's, it's kind of harsh. It's for future generations. <laughs> She's smacking him in the penis <laughs> with a rock. He had ample reason to go be with somebody else. Unfortunately, he couldn't get away.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, that's how the kingdom of Makabaki came about apparently. <laughs>
1: wow it's a violent (laughs) origin story
0: right and that these people were wiped out by one of the desolations so that's where you know where the story came from is Mm Dalinar saying what do we know about them having just seen the aftermath of one Mm -hmm. and she tells him that the Voidbringers came again and again to force mankind off of Roshar and into damnation just as they once forced mankind and the heralds out of the tranquil and halls so there's that.
1: There is that, yeah. I like uh, I like Dalinar sticking to his guns. Mm-hmm. I'm like, don't compromise. Don't do it. You work too hard. You're too important. Also, you're an asshole.
0: Why is he an asshole?
1: One of the things I loved about this is that she calls him out for being self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm not... Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I guess i I guess I am being self indul. I never looked at it that way before. Mm-hmm. So I thought I thought that was sort of an interesting character moment for him. And I like that she has this ability to sort of bring that out in him. So I thought I thought that was pretty cool. I also think the kind of juxtaposition between his relationship with Navani and that of his ex wife is interesting only goes to prove what i've always said penises have a brain <laughs> but they do not have a memory <laughs>
0: did you really say that
1: i just did didn't i that's,
0: i'm my mind is blown i'm that's one of the most astute things i've ever heard you say <laughs>
1: yeah it's true it's 100% true I,
0: it really <laughs>
1: It really is. It's 100% true. <laughs> hey, I read it in the bro code.
0: In the bro code.
1: He's not the only one who's got a code.
0: I believe it. Well, my favorite part is when he tells Navani that he's not going to abandon her. Like, he's still like, I don't know how this is going to work because, you know, people are not going to like this. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, it- I'm. I'm not going to abandon you. I don't know how it's going to work, but we're going to make it work. And you know that he will.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Like they're not. There's not going to be this whole like, like will they or won't they or what? You know, none of that bull crap.
1: He's not going to see her the next day and be like, "What? Nothing happened." Right.
0: Like, hey, that was fun, but uh, <laughs> we're not really looking for anything serious right now. <laughs> I thought you knew that.
1: <laughs> I thought it was very clear.
0: So chapter 62 is called Three Glyphs. Bridge 4 is heading out on a run. They're exhausted from chasm duty and are pretty sure that they are all going to die. After a brief showdown with some jerk soldiers, they are forced to make a harrowing approach and Kaladin enacts his plan. Turns out his plan consists of dancing around in front of the bridges wearing Parshendi carapace in order to draw their fire. And boy, does it work. He worries how his superiors are going to react, but luckily, Sadius approves. Shen, however, does not. He becomes almost catatonic with grief. Still, Kaladin considers the day a victory. That victory is almost demolished when a squad of Parshendi archers uncharacteristically leaves the battle to attack Bridge Four from the rear. They're saved by Dalinar Kholin, who salutes Kaladin before returning to the battle. This action isn't enough to counteract Kaladin's originally cynical view of Light Eyes, but it does give him a moment of doubt. So that's kind of exciting. This
1: was an exciting chapter.
0: Kaladin's a baller now. Yeah, right. And it was neat to see how much he'd grown in his using the stormlight yeah. from not even being able to make it do anything to now being able to pull in just enough so that he's not visibly glowing to give himself away, but that he can dodge arrows like a bad donkey you know
1: yeah make them go to his shield bend bending the air almost he seemed to be doing i thought it was interesting that the chapter starts with him uh having prayers that he's tied to his arms which you know we've seen that kind of pop up a couple places writing down prayers and uh with glyphs and burning them and different things of that nature but it's interesting because we've never really tied them to stormlight or anything like that there's never been any kind of connection at least not that I've been able to pick up on so it's interesting to me that in this chapter which is a really important chapter we have that element as one of the as really the first thing that's mentioned in the chapter
0: well and the 3 glyphs that are that make up his prayer mm-hmm. are wind, protection, beloved. So I thought that the fact that wind was the first one was interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So and and as Kaladin is dodging these arrows, he 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 thinks about how he feels as though he was made for this. Like he's yeah. not exceeding his capacity. He's actually finally meeting the capacity that he was supposed to have.
1: Even though he is able to avoid having his storm light be visible, arrows were bending through the air to hit his shield. He was moving at an inhuman speed with all of Sadeus' armies and all the bridge crews watching. Now, the bridge crews were fairly distracted, so sure they didn't see, you know, they weren't observing with full detail. But the army was just sitting there waiting. So they were all watching this. So it would be very difficult for me to accept that Sadius saw that from the same guy, and he knows who it is, the same guy who was hung up in the storm who didn't die and not think that there's something metaphysical going on.
0: So that's it's really hard to know um how close Sadius was. True, true. My yeah. perception is he's pretty far back.
1: Well, that's been expressed before that he does like to stay in the in the f- the rear echelon of the battle.
0: So he does when he comes over.
1: But somebody say that he yeah. was
0: remark it was remarkable the way that he moved. Yeah. But my perception is he wasn't close enough to see how many arrows he was actually dodging. You know, the bridge crews are right up front, but the the army kind of stays back until the bridges are set.
1: But there's a certain amount of mathematics that go that are involved. If they're fighting the Parshendi who are already on a plateau and there are no other casualties, it means every arrow from the Parshendi was aimed at him. Every single one. Yeah. And he survived.
0: It's a bad donkey.
1: How could you not think there's something metaphysical going on? We well, and we don't pro- know.
0: You probably do think that. Yeah, yeah. It, and and probably the stories about him, you know, quadrupled after this.
1: Yeah, and that's even mentioned. It's just, but it doesn't change. But you mean
0: that Sadius didn't ride up and say, "Is there something metaphysical going on here? Well, What's happening?"
1: Well, we get, I mean, we don't really get it in this chapter, but we get it in the next chapter that, like, not only do things just sort of go on, they, you know, they double down. Oh, that's not really true. They basically just continue to put them out there every time. I don't know how you would see something like that and not question the way you're you're using it and what you're doing, like...
0: So you're saying, why didn't Sadius make him a, a spearman?
1: I don't have an A plus B, so therefore C should have mm-hmm. happened. It's more that I just sort of feel like anybody in this world, even though magic exists in this world, it all exists within like Fabrials and, and things of that nature. For this person to have been able to one, survive the storm and then two, do this. Don't you at some point start to go, there's something really special about this person. Maybe we shouldn't be trying to send him out to die every single day. And by the way, every single day that we've sent him out to die, he doesn't die. Wouldn't that just cause you to stop and think for a little bit? Sure. There's some sort of discussions going on about this cat, but it hasn't caused anybody to do anything other than try to kill him harder. Yeah. I don't know what it means. I just find it strange. But when Sadius walks by Mattal and assumes that it was his idea, I'm ass- I think it bears more credibility on what you were saying earlier that this is just them attempting to find quote just ways unquote to kill Kaladin he probably just assumes that he put him up to this suicide mission and it didn't work which I think is more credibility to what we were saying you were saying in the beginning that you know they want to get rid of this guy but they still feel like they have to do it in some sort of, you know, well, again, legal and, and, way. And
0: I don't know that that Sadius has gone to matal and said, you need to make sure he dies. OK, or whether matal just knows that his predecessor was killed because of this guy hot dogging yeah. and doing things outside of the norm and I don't want that to happen to me. And also, I don't like things happening outside of the norm. I don't mm-hmm. like people rising above their station, and therefore, I-, I don't like this guy. You know, but I can't. But again, I can't really just execute him without a good reason. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that Sadius explicitly gave those orders, or just expressed displeasure that. His soldiers mm-hmm. were going to gawk at this bridgeman and, and what the hell is that up with that? And the people under him are scrambling to keep him happy. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say.
1: No, that's true. That's true. But I think sadius in this chapter has the ultimate prick move. He says, Nary a casualty. Seems like a waste somehow.
0: <laughs> right. Like, what? Like, why did I bring so many people?
1: Uh, it, I thought, I, uh, yeah, that, that seemed like an incredibly cold comment to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's that character.
1: Then at the end, they say, next time we're going to send out a bunch of guys. Right. And later we find out that apparently they do. How is it that that is going to work? Like, I understand... Like, the reason why Kaladin survives is because of the Stormlight. Yeah, the armor and the shield certainly helped. Like, there's no, there's no doubt about that. But if it wasn't for the Stormlight, there's no way in hell he survives. So, putting five guys out there, only one of whom has Stormlight. Just seems to me like a recipe for four dudes to get dead. But apparently that's not what happens.
0: Well, we can certainly talk about what actually happens when we get to that chapter, but what I think is interesting from a character standpoint is that we have Moash and these other guys who have become loyal enough to Kaladin to want to do that and we see yeah. bridge for like coming together as a crew and offering to help you know rock before Kaladin even goes out there is like you're gonna do something dangerous aren't you and Kaladin's like yeah and he goes well what can i what can i do to help yeah you know so it's just again as a comment on this how this style of leadership has transformed this group of men
1: yeah absolutely which is pretty cool it is
0: And apparently the armor is pretty good and stinky and stinky.
1: So there's that. There's that. I want to go back real quick. I said back in chapter 60 that I wanted to bring something up and then I forgot to do it. So there's a little out of order and I apologize, but in chapter 59, I mentioned the Parshendi with their knives that seem sort of out of place. Okay, and in chapter sixty, that be- his vision begins with Dalinar saying that the shard blades seemed directly out of place. Mm. That, as if it were given to the radiance directly by the heralds themselves. That's right prior to him going into the vision. Yeah, so it's the what he's talking about when he goes into the, into the vision. It seems very similar to me to what we see with the Parshendi and they're having these elaborate weapons from out of nowhere now we know so little about the parshendi that they could have a very robust physical culture and we just don't know about it so it's so it's it's hard to say but i thought the juxtaposition at the end of 59 and then the beginning of chapter 60 of those two things Mm -hmm. was uh probably deliberate yeah, good call. I'm sorry. So I've, I forgot to bring that up and I didn't want to move on without it. So 63.
0: Chapter 63 is called Fear. So Kaladin and the crew get to work making armor for every member of Bridge 4. Kaladin has reluctantly agreed to let some other members of the crew run with him while he distracts the Parshendi. Watching the men train, Kaladin worries about the escape plan. Rock suggests trying to make it look like they've been killed on a bridge run. Teft asks Kaladin to show the men some of his sweet spear skills, but Kaladin is still afraid of the man he became when he would pick up a spear. He promises that he will pick one up again when the time comes.
1: I ain't got nothing to say about this chapter.
0: <laughs> no? Again, I just, I, got, I z- think it's... Good
1: chapter. Uh-huh. I just didn't well, have any... it was any, very short. It was it's very only short, a couple yeah. of
0: pages long. Yeah. So it's, it's just kind of them progressing in their plans and and reemphasizing how, especially Moash, but really the entire bridge for like, these are guys who wouldn't hesitate to kick a baby if they thought it would make their lives a little bit better. Yeah. And they've gone from that to be all, all of them volunteering to be the one who runs in front of the arrows to help his crew stay alive. So it's just kind of the culmination of that development and it's pretty neat.
1: Well, the other, the only real note I have is that Kaladin, who wanted so much to just give me a spear, just put a spear in my hand, mm-hmm. now has enough self-awareness to know that that's gonna put him in a bad place, and he's not going to be thinking clearly mm-hmm. in that state of mind. So I, that was the only sort of note I had in this chapter.
0: We also learn a little bit of more about Moash. Yeah. Um. So Kaladin, as he's watching the men train, he sees a lot of himself in Moash. Because Moash, is he pushes himself harder than anyone else. He's progressed more quickly than anyone else. And Kaladin's worried that he's going to burn out. And he remembers the people that were there for him when he was in that same place after Tien was killed. And who kept him from burning out. So he goes over and he has a talk with them and he finds out that um, Moash is working for vengeance as well but he says to Kaladin, you wanted to be able to save someone. I just want to be able to kill someone.
1: Mm -hmm. So there's
0: a particular, we're assuming light eyes because... But we know that Moesh doesn't like them.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, a particular light eyes that he is gunning for that he wants to be able to kill. And he tells Kaladin, I had set aside those plans as being hopeless, but you gave them back to me. So I'm going to defend you with my life. So Kaladin has found what was his, his biggest detractor has become his his most loyal supporter. So that's significant. So chapter 64 is called A Man of Extremes.
1: This is chapter head-hopping extreme.
0: Yes. Yes. is one of the first times that we've had that happen. Yeah. It will happen more as, as the series progresses. Gotcha. In this chapter, Dalinar and Navani are taking a stroll, rehashing their pre-Gavilar friendship and the thorny nature of their current relationship. Their talk is interrupted by battle horns. A chasm fiend has been spotted at the tower itself. In the lumberyard, Bridge 4 marches to battle. All 35 of them wear Parshendi bone armor. There have been six bridge runs in the last 10 days with no casualties. Bridge 4 leaves for the battle surrounded by cheers. Adolin is also preparing for the march. He, Dalinar, and Sadius realize that this is an opportunity not only to win a gem heart, but to trap a major portion of the Parshendi forces. They decide to bring as many men as they possibly can and use Sadeus' faster bridges to get there quickly for a true joint assault. This will be the first time that they have done this. After being reassured that Sadius has a new way of using bridgemen, Dalinar agrees and they head off to end the war.
1: So this is where, you know, we find out that they've had six runs and they've been using, you know, groups of five to go out there and draw arrows, but they've had no casualties. I don't want to spend a lot of time harping on it because we don't get to see it. So we don't really know why it seems to work, but it seems strange to me that they've had no casualties if he's the only one with Stormlight now. I say that, however, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm beginning to think it does make sense because Kaladin's also at the front of the bridge, but he's usually got Rock or Moash or Scar or Teft next to him, and they haven't been getting killed on the bridge runs either when the arrows have been flying at
0: them. And they don't—they have, haven't had armor. And they haven't
1: had armor. Also, I think about Kaladin's... Squads, even when he was in Amram's army, tended to survive when nobody, when everybody else didn't. They lost people, but they tended to survive as opposed to being cut down whole. Whole. So, cloth. And
0: Kaladin has finally realized that. Oh, hey, how long have I been actually doing this? You know, bringing the arrows yeah, yeah. to me, drawing them to me.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, because he's he's drawing the arrows deliberately into his shield. He also mentions that the Parshendi seem to focus on him. Like they can almost sense that he's the one behind it.
1: Yeah. That is true. So so I guess that makes more sense to me the more I the more I think about it. I, I'm curious though because so I guess they're gonna they're not gonna come from two different directions. They're just gonna come straight forward, the two armies. Bridge four can only be with one group. You know, he can't back go back and forth. So I guess they're just marching all together.
0: Yes. So they're going to they
1: And we'll see next week. They're they're just going to try and
0: overwhelm them. Yeah. Because they realize that the Parshendi are going to have to bring a lot of people as well. And that if they bring, you know, fifteen thousand guys, they'll have a chance to wipe out a good number of their forces.
1: Interesting. And we really haven't had a chance to see whether or not this has happened or hasn't happened, but interesting that other uh, high princes haven't started to want to join forces with these two. Yeah. Because they've kind of broke that, you know, that uh, taboo, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, so you would think that now other high princes seeing what they're doing would start to say, oh, maybe it, maybe it's okay for us to work together, but so far it doesn't seem like that's happened, I guess. So Sadius says to Dalinar, I found a new way of using bridge crews and results in very low casualties, almost no casualties. And uh, then he says to Dalinar, perhaps you're getting through to me. But it was only two chapters ago when all these bridge crews had no casualties that he said, seems like a waste somehow.
0: Well, yeah, and we see how manipulative Sadius is. You know, he's going to use this as a way of being like, "Oh, yeah, you're getting through to me," because he really wants this assault. He really wants he wants this gem heart. Yeah, and a, a gem heart has never been won at, at this in this particular plateau. Yeah. So we see him like like he really well, he's excited about this one. Mm-hmm. He knows their best chance is to. For them to all just charge in together.
1: It's interesting that we get to see Sadius be that manipulative.
0: Well, because we know that he he implies to Dalinar that he's this was his idea. Yeah. And we know that that's not true. Yeah. But he's going to make, if he can make himself look good, he's going to. And so we learn a little bit about Dalinar's wife. Shh. I just think that's so interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. That he can't even hear her name.
1: Well, it hadn't really crossed my mind up until this point that, okay, you've wiped her from your memory or your ability to remember anything about her. It doesn't stop other people. Everybody else still has a memory of her. Mm -hmm. They're going to, they're not going to not bring your dead wife up, Mm -hmm. you know, unless you bring out your shard blade and start beheading everybody who does it. Maybe Mm -hmm. then they'll, you know, so, so yeah, of course, she's going to come up periodically in conversation. It never really had crossed my mind until this sort of time, but I did think that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that Navani called her kind of simple, right. which is kind of how Dalinar is. But she was
0: nice.
1: But not clever.
0: Not clever. But Dal, But nice.
1: But Dalinar is kind of that way.
0: Yeah, He's pretty straightforward. Yeah. It's true.
1: So, and and like, I like Navani as a character because she's not taking crap from anybody Mm -hmm. and she seems to have a better sense about what's going on than anybody else Mm -hmm. does. I like how she challenges Dalinar. But despite this, I still find it hard to care about their relationship.
0: Well, it's pretty new.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I feel like I don't know a whole lot about Navani. She kind of pops up. Mm Mm-hmm out of nowhere. And like, I like her in her interaction. So like, she's an enjoyable character to Mm -hmm. read. Uh, But I, I I just don't, I don't really feel like I know her as much as like, I know like Yasna, like who we, I felt like we got to learn a lot about her Mm -hmm. in those chapters. Uh, And then Dalinar for being on screen so much is still a fairly one dimensional character. Now he he's interesting because of the way he gets challenged, Mm -hmm. but his personality is still very one note.
0: Well, in in this chapter, he kind of explains why that is a little, you know, and and cause Navani in her challenges of him, she's always saying to him, can't you just relax? Can't you just let up on yourself? And he finally explains that. He says, I'm a man of extremes and I'm a weak man. And the only way that I have found to control these extremes has been to dedicate my life to something. And first it was Gavilar and swearing, you know, supporting his kingdom, mm-hmm. you know, and then it was following the codes. So, like, he's he's even more than Kaladin, he's afraid of the person that he is. Um, he's got some kind of abilities. We you know he's, you know, he's the Blackthorn. So he's. A fierce warrior, but he's afraid of the freedom to just use that wherever, whenever. Yeah. We don't know why.
1: Because nobody wants to get pricked by the black thorn. Exactly. (laughs) Drawing small drops of blood everywhere.
0: (laughs) So man, does he feel guilty, but he likes moody chicks. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He hasn't outgrown that yet, unfortunately. Well, you know, I mean, it
1: happens.
0: (laughs) So he talks a little bit about his relationship with Gavilar, too. That Gavilar was just like this force of will. He had this sense of entitlement. And Dalinar's role was always to kind of give way. So much so that when he started courting Navani and introduced her to Gavilar, and Gavilar assumed that he was... You know, he was just being a wingman for him. Yeah. And he wanted Navani. Gavilar, I mean, Dalinar just stepped back right away, Mm -hmm. even though he was really into her. Um, And that we we, the only little glimpse we get as to the old Dalinar was that he thinks a lot about the fact that he at one point considered killing Gavilar to get the throne and to get Navani. So he's so afraid of becoming that again that he has like he's like built this little this little prison for himself of the codes of this unyielding moral um, structure that for him to do something that even stinks of, of being not right he he's afraid of cr- he's just gonna crumble back into what he was before
1: yeah. Well, and I think it, it doesn't hurt that he's sort of seen the way of kings be proven right in a number of ways. That's all I have for this mm, section.
0: That's all I have as well.
1: All right. So we got some questions, but I want to remind us uh, next time we'll read chapter 65 through 69. And are you ready for some questions from listeners?
0: Yes, I am. All right. Let's not forget the ones we forgot last week.
1: I'm not. I actually put them on the top of my list.
0: All right. Let's hear it.
1: So from from last week because I forgot them. uh, Brian Dana says, "Where does a guy learn to play D and D?" All I can say is that there are a lot of meetup groups and a lot of people looking to play this game. It's more popular than it's ever been or any of the kind of role playing games that that are similar, the pen and paper kind of role playing games. So between I think like meetup groups and also finding a store that sells, you know, that sells the game, I think if you go to those places and look in those groups, you'll find a group of people. And I think that's the way you gotta do it.
0: Yeah, I think um, that's definitely a good suggestion. How did you learn?
1: So my story was a little bit different. Uh, I had, I growing up when I was a little, little kid, I had a neighbor whose older brother liked to play it. And he had like, you know, all these cool miniatures and a big dragon and stuff. And I'm talking about when I was like eight years old and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I wanted to do it, but his his brother would never, you know, his brother was a lot older and he would never play with us or do anything about it. And, um, when I moved away from there, I just kind of always wanted to play and I never ran into anybody who wanted to play. So when I was like 12 years old, maybe 11 years old, I, um, I made up my, I think it was 11. I just made up my own set of rules.
0: Oh, that's so cute.
1: I found like two books, but they weren't like the core books. And I just sort of extrapolated from what I could read in those books to try to come up with what I thought the rules should be. And then um, and then I just made my friends play. Like, you know, people who had no interest in it, I was like, no, this is what we're doing.
0: That's adorable. So
1: that's just kind of how it happened for me. And then eventually I got, like mm-hmm. two years later, I got the core books and then, and then actually learned how to play the game. But Gareth Williamson says, uh, I don't know if this has been answered before, but how did you guys meet? favorite books, and what made you decide to start the podcast?
0: Well, it was a dark and stormy night.
1: (laughs) We met, well, we have two different stories about it because (laughs) because we met in in college. We 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 came from a similar group of friends in college, and I remember meeting Liz like two months before she remembers meeting me. I remember meeting her at the beginning of the semester, uh, the spring semester, my second semester of college, and she remembers me on spring break two months later meeting me.
0: Like There there are a lot of parties that I don't remember from <laughs> college. We must have met at one of those.
1: We must have, yeah. So favorite books, I mean, for me, it's A Song of Ice and Fire. Should be obvious. I, I never shut up about it. And Lord of the Rings.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's up there for me. Kingkiller, Chronicles. Yeah. I mean, the books are... I guess the books we've covered have been my favorite books. Sorry, I'm <laughs> no, sorry, but also a uh, wheel of time for me. That was a huge mm-hmm. formative series um, in, in my life. The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. That was a a big formative book for me in becoming a fantasy fan as well. I'm just looking at our our bookshelf. Um, I read more YA literature, I think, than Chad does. Um, I I really I personally
1: don't like young adults, so
0: I don't like. I mean, no, I like I like everyone. <laughs> I'm just teasing, I do. But I, I like YA literature a, a lot as well. Tad Williams is a favorite. Sci-fi, Jam- James S.A. Corey's Leviathan Wake series. I really love that one. I don't know. There's a We've got a couple of book recommendation lists, I think, going on, yeah. the, on the podcast page. Um, kind of an ongoing thing. And I think we also, I don't think we've mentioned it in a while, but we have a a reader's group over on Goodreads. I don't know how active it is. I, I haven't been, I haven't been, been there in a there. while, but yeah. we should get that going. That could be fun too. It could be, yeah. And see what everyone's currently reading.
1: And we decided to start the podcast because I walked into the room one day and I said, come here. And I shoved a microphone in her face.
0: That is literally what happened. That is
1: literally what happened. Yeah. I
0: walked into the living room and there were two microphones sitting out. And he said, I want to talk about Name of the Wind. And I was like, Yes. <laughs>
1: I wanted to start a podcast for a while. I've liked the format, and A Song of Ice and Fire has a ton of podcasts, so many podcasts. But when you get outside of that, there are so many great books within fantasy, but there's very few podcasts for them. So that's sort of where it came from. Yep. Yep. Brian McClure says, question for the Duchess. If you could only have one, what do you choose? Doors of Stone, Winds of Winter, or Dragonsteel? You only get one.
0: Oh, my gosh. That literally makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would...
1: Oh, I know what I would say.
0: I would have to pick Doors of Stone. Yeah, of course, Yeah, absolutely. I would have to. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I would be... Sa- and then it would be Dragonsteel.
1: Catherine Stewart says, After this book, are you planning a break to do Saga or to finish Stormlight first? You guys talked about covering saga a while back. I've just finished book one, and it was amazing. So this bears conversation.
0: Yes, because we love saga.
1: We do. So what we have decided, and it's it's we should let people know this. What we have decided is that we've actually recorded the first episode for saga a couple weeks ago. But one of the things that's very important to us is that we try as much as possible to put a podcast out every week. But we also have kids and a life and family and 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 certain you know requirements there. And so we recorded saga and we got it set aside for the event that we're unable to record for some reason. Or sometime around the holidays that we need want to take a break or something along those lines, and that's kind of how we're going to continue it. So Stormlight is going to be our main focus, and we will sprinkle episodes of Saga in, but we do not have like it's not going to be like every fourth week. It's not. It's going to sort of happen. If you'll pardon we the we may throw it out
0: there as a bonus sometime
1: yeah we haven't fully decided what we're gonna do, so I say that, and I think it's important for you to know because I kind of feel bad for anybody who is like we
0: did oh. tell the mold all to, all we told to them we go were gonna do it,
1: it. exact go buy it and then and then we haven't released it yet, so like if you're waiting to read book two for us. I appreciate that support, but maybe you should just go read book two, because we really don't know yet exactly how that's all going to play out. So...
0: Yeah, we we like, in the beginning of the podcast, we banked a lot of episodes, we recorded ahead, but as we began interacting more, we liked the, the more immediate interactions with listeners. Yeah. So we, we don't like to record too far ahead, but there are weeks that, you know... We all get the puke flu. Everyone remembers that week, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Those things happen.
0: They happen. They do
1: happen, yeah. And we have things that you know bring us out of town. We've been on a really good run of being able to record every week despite having other things going on in our lives because we enjoy it, so we, we make time for it. But, but we need to move on. Uh, Brian McClure says, uh, if you created your own Order of Nights Radiant, what would your ideals be after the first one?
0: Mine would have something to do with order and cleanliness <laughs> I'll have to stew on that i may I may have to come up with an infographic. Mine How would be
1: uh, don't stick your dick in convenient
0: <laughs> because it has a brain but not a memory
1: exactly don't <laughs> don't do it that's That's my lesson number one. <laughs> Felicity says, what's your impression of the new doctor?
0: I love the new doctor. The new doctor is awesome. I love her. I love her. I think she's she so reminds me of 10. But a lot of people say she reminds them of 11. She reminds me of 10. Just even the way, you know, there's one scene where they're they're chasing after one of the bad guys and she says, "Oi!" And it just sounded like like David Tennant's "Oi." Yeah. You know? Um and just her kind of exuberant joyful demeanor. I feel like 10, you know, 11 became a lot more serious. He was almost kind of melancholy. And then 12 was like straight up grumpy old man, you (laughs) know, and so this is just a nice reaction to that. I could go, I could go on for a long time. So you will probably need to stop me from talking, but I've loved it so far.
1: I've really enjoyed it as well. I've enjoyed it as well. Wallace Baker says, do you think that Kaladin was actually killed by the Shard Bearer? And is actually really dead inside of some sort of Jacob's Ladder style purgatory, and the bridge crews and Sadius are just angels purifying to him to meet his creator.
0: Damn. Yeah, and that is some deep tinfoil. foil.
1: And then Eric Bravo. Allga- yeah, and then Eric Allgaier says, "And would that make Sill just a Spren who sees dead people?" <laughs>
0: That's
1: funny. <laughs> so I, like where I haven't
0: been on the Facebook page. I, I haven't been able to get on it. Recently,
1: I like where that's so going.
0: That's hilarious. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, Ian James Crone says, I've hit a plateau in my weightlifting. Will adding chasm fiend blood to my pre-workout <laughs> meal help me break 250 pounds on my bench press? I said, yes, but it's illegal in nine kingdoms <laughs> and it makes your pee smell like creme. Susan says, start bench-pressing chasm fiends. If nothing else, it would cause quite a stir. <laughs> <laughs> Theo says, man, Dalinar's vision. Has this totally messed your view of the timeline up or what? Nohadon inventing the Radiance and they're 4,500 years ago during the prelude when everyone is in the Bronze Age or something? What the hell is going on? Susan also says, I'm totally lost on the timeline with No Hayden referring to the Desolations. I understand that the heralds would come as needed, but how many desolations were there? I'm also, the timeline for me is very Mm -hmm. messed up. I think that's part of what is happening for me at this stage in the book Mm -hmm. is I'm kind of getting into an information overload Mm -hmm. and trying to hold on to all these disparate threads, which as of yet, much of it doesn't connect to anything, mm-hmm. which is sort of why, how I reacted to that one thing, uh, the nay hell bond. I mm-hmm. was like, what the hell is this? Another damn thing. Like, so it's, it's tough to put all this together.
0: Well, there's a lot. And there's stuff that once it's outwardly explained, you'll be like, oh yeah, this was mentioned there. And then that is the same thing as that. You know what I'm saying? I'm,
1: sh- I'm sure that that'll happen, yeah. And, and I like books that have that layer of complexity because it makes it, for me, it makes it more enjoyable if you really read deeply and also for rereading. So so I I understand it. It's something, it's sort of a necessary evil sometimes of the types of books that I enjoy mm-hmm. that they get sometimes complicated and difficult to understand. Uh, Katrina says, "Who's more insufferably emo when the going gets bad? Locke, Kaladin, or Jon Snow?"
0: Oh, jeez, that's a merry bike ride cliff for you right there. Right.
1: <laughs> well, and I, you could you could add uh, you could add Perrin and oh, you know don't. to that too, Perrin Ibarra. Oh my gosh! I, I don't know. I might have to say Kaladin. Kaladin is he's pretty, pretty insufferable. Insufferably emo, yeah. Locke is insufferably not in not as much emo, he just kind of becomes an asshole.
0: Yeah. But he's like self-aware that he's being an asshole. You know. Yeah. And he, he apologizes for it later, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Zach Daniel says, Is the Lightbringer series an option for future consideration?
0: I would say definitely yes. It gets It's been on the up. short list
1: before. It's been on yeah. the
0: short list every time. It is definitely a favorite of mine.
1: Brian McClure says, what Rosharn animal would you want as a pet?
0: Uh, none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I is like the little
1: frog thing that uh, TN that and Kaladin oh, were playing. Oh, the lurg? The lurg. That's it. That's <laughs> the only one. For
0: me, I mean, I guess I'd have to pick an axe hound, but it still sounds terrifying. Like no, no, I don't want an axe hound.
1: That sounds awful.
0: grasshopper.
1: That sounds terrible. No. <laughs> I'd
0: want a chicken from Shinovar. <laughs> there
1: you go. You know what? I've heard chickens make good pets. No,
0: you know what? Fuck that. I want a Rashadium.
1: Ooh. I want
0: a Rashadium.
1: Rashadium?
0: Wow. I, I want a Rashadium.
1: Good call. Good call. And then Eric Allgeyer says, I have a prediction. Episode 71 will have the last ever listener question segment.
0: (laughs) No way. This is the best part of the podcast.
1: All right. So I got two more things before we're done. Okay. We got a dear Duchess. Oh, nice. Uh, So this one says, first line is, read this email in a stereotypical New York... American accent.
0: Well, that's very specific.
1: I'll I'll do my best. Dear Duchess, help me understand my girl. Sometimes she just goes off for no reason. Like, for example, one day she comes home, starts right into yelling at me. I didn't understand. I hadn't done anything. She came into the house. She throws a coat. She throws a bag. She goes in the kitchen. She starts slamming pots. I'm just sitting there confused. She makes dinner. She's cursing under her breath. I still don't get it. I didn't do anything. She serves dinner, cleans up, does the taxes, mowing the lawn, chops down a tree, plains the woods, builds a house. I didn't do anything. Nothing. All day. In fact, the whole week, if I'm honest with myself, it had been, it really maybe been the better part of a year. I finally asked her what's wrong. She said, nothing. What is wrong with this broad? Signed, done nothing.
0: Well done Nothing. I think it's time for you to start doing something. But sometimes, bitches just be crazy. What can I say?
1: (laughs) Maybe it was somewhere between mowing the lawn and chopping down a tree that she got pissed. (laughs) Right. Planing a wood, building a house. (laughs) All right. I have a a merry bike ride chasm for you. Oh, nice. Sadius. Tywin Lannister. Ugh. Master Lauren.
0: Okay. Oh gosh. Mm. All right. I would have to marry Lauren because hello books.
1: That's I knew that's what you were gonna say. <laughs> Because of access to the to the books,
0: I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bike ride Sadius and Cliff Tywin only because Tywin just gives me the oogies like real bad, real bad. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'd have to do, but I'm not gonna like it. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna be thinking about someone else while I'm on that bike ride.
1: <laughs> that's what bike that's rides it. are for. <laughs> are we talking about the same thing? <laughs> All right. Are you ready for predictions? Yes, I am. Okay. Kaladin and Bridge Four never escape. At least not in this book.
0: That's a sad prediction.
1: I'm predicting that's not how they... I don't think they're going to escape. I think something's going to happen where they get out of that sort of depth of the situation they're in, but I don't think it's going to be by escaping. I don't know what it is. That's what I think. Before the end of this book, we're going to have another chasm fiend encounter. The Parshendi will raid the Alethi camps. Uh, mm. This was my super tinfoily one that I told you about the other night. I don't think it's true, but I'm gonna say it anyway.
0: Oh, say it anyway.
1: Dalinar is no Hayden reborn. All right. I think Navani is gonna betray Dalinar.
0: Hmm.
1: And I think Moash will eventually oppose Kaladin. All right. Those are my predictions.
0: Good predictions.
1: You can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast com. You can also find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast, on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess, and on our Facebook group page at Facebook.com backslash groups backslash the DND group. If you want to see what I look like dressed up as the bearded lady. <laughs> Go to our Instagram page <laughs> at thedukeandduchesspodcast.com and we will see you next week when we will be reading chapters 65 through 69 of The Way of Kings. Good night, everybody.
0: Good night.